so excited to re-release one of my favorite podcast episodes, Tony Hawk, 11 years in a row, world skateboarding champion. He's made over $100 million worth of video games all about skateboarding. I interviewed him it's a little over two years ago in May 2016 at uh, Jason Gaynard's Mastermind Talks conference. And I remember on the way to the conference, I drove with Tony and we passed this skateboarding park. Here he is, he's 48 years old. And he said before he stopped by the hotel to pick me up, he stopped by the skateboarding park and was just skateboarding. And all these kids were like, are you Tony Hawk? And he of course was like, yeah, and he was showing them tricks and they were showing him stuff. Here he was 11 times the world champion of skateboarding and he took the time out just in his spare time. He had a few extra moments and he just loved it. He just wanted to play and hang out and talk to these kids. And I think that's the real example of peak performance. You have to just love something so much that you not only immerse yourself in it to get better, you immerse yourself in it because that's all you want to do. And we had a great time talking on the podcast about what it takes to be a peak performer. And then not only that, he, he couldn't stay at his level forever at the world champion level, but he reinvented himself to become a businessman. And he's a powerful brand now in the skateboarding industry, including, you know, again, over $100 million worth of video games. So a great interview, and I think you'll enjoy it. Now, here's the show. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. The way I turned pro was I had reached the top of the amateur ranks, and I'm filling out the entry form to the next event, and there's a checkbox that says amateur, and there's a checkbox that says pro, and so I checked the pro box. And then that was it. And so when did you decide, okay, I'm going to dominate every area of it, and... I don't, that, was not, that was never a... That a, wasn't your world That plan. was not a conscious decision, no. You just come out of the bushes? Yeah. Typical Altitra fashion? Just like last year, we had James um, interview Rick Ross, the real Rick Ross. For those of you who were not here last year... Um, the real Rick Ross was the second largest drug kingpin in U.S. history. I think when he was arrested, he was worth $600 million um, and a uh, sweetheart of a guy. <laughs> he really is. He's a super nice guy. Um, but uh, this year we have Tony, a little more milder. You're, yeah, you're, you're, not into, yeah, you're not into that stuff. We don't know yet. There you go. And I've always been a huge fan of Tony. I mean, just given I'm 31 now, I grew up with the Tony Hawk franchise of games and uh, there's a lot of people in the sports space obviously who um, you know do well in sports and then unfortunately they fall off the map and don't have a, a business plan in, in place or uh, anything like that and Tony obviously is one of those uh, athletes that has done a really good job uh, I guess crossing the chasm into entrepreneurship with licensing uh, and that kind of stuff and again super likable guy so I'm not going to hold it up any longer James Altucher and Tony Hawk. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I have to admit, I have to ask totally stupid, naive questions first. Are you okay with that? Like the most stupid. I, questions I would prefer possible. that. Okay, good. So I can I could barely like walk three steps without falling over. So I have to ask just some of the physics of what you do. 
So when you're, I was watching some videos earlier, and when you're like kind of vroom and sort of. <laughs> That's what we call it. Sort of upside down and about to do like two and a half twists. How is it that 10 seconds later, you're not dead? <laughs> uh, it's, it's from a lot, of, a lot of trying and failing. It really is. I mean, um, it, and also you just start to get a second, uh, sixth sense of, of where you are in the air and where you, where you need to be and how to land and how to adjust yourself. And um, it just comes with experience, though. I mean, you know, to learn tricks like in the air, doing flips and things, you have to be, not that you want to, but you have to be willing to take some knocks along the way. So what was like, what was the first, so you've been doing this since you were like 10 or 11, depending on when you consider when you got serious. What was the first time there was a trick you did that originally you thought, there's no way I'm going to do that without killing myself? I, I think it was the first time I ever got airborne out of a pool. Because when I started skating, it was, it was all backyard pools. I got into skating right at the end of the Dogtown Z-Boys days. So the, the whole idea of vertical ramps, that came later because those were just trying to emulate pools. And so I'm skating these pools, and, and I remember the first time I ever went to a skate park, and I saw these grown, what I thought were grown men, they were, you know, like 12. 18, yeah, 17, 18, um, flying out of these swimming pools, and I was like, that's what I want to do. And I never thought it might be a reality. I just wanted to work towards it, and I, I remember the day that I actually felt my wheels hit the coping and, and that I was above it. And, uh, and I remember thinking, you better hold on, because if you really fall off of this, you don't know how to fall. So what happened? Well, I, just, I held on. I, was, <laughs> I made it. I had to make it. I had no choice. I, had, I didn't really, like, even falling is something you learn how to do. I was not that well-versed in falling at that time in terms of getting some, out of something safely. I fell a lot, but I didn't really know how to get out of it safely. So what does that mean, not being able to get out of it safely? Like, what would happen the first well, time like, you fell? Oh, just... Um, I know there's a total like, It's like a bad safety role. You know, it's like just tumbling down down the transition when there is a rare, very basic maneuver, especially when you're skating big ramps, where you just take one step to to um, lessen the impact and then drop to your knees and you have knee pads and you just slide down on your knees. And like, you know, you can do that from, you can literally do that from 20 feet up. So, so like that was when you were 11 or 12. Yeah. And you told me just a half hour ago, you went to the skate park down the street. I did. So what happens when you fall now? And again, um, I'm sorry that it's all about falling and the, the <laughs> physics of this. I'll ask more important questions later. I get up a little more slowly, um, but uh, it's it's something that's just inherent with with what I do. So I'm, I'm definitely used to falling. It's it's the it's more like the unexpected falls when you think you've got something and then all of a sudden something didn't go right, but you don't have the time to to prepare for the fall. That's when you get hurt. Do you ever think? Oh my gosh! I just can't do this anymore. I, it hurts too much when I fall. <laughs> uh, I, like, I, I thought afraid also that that moment will come. <laughs> I, I thought that um, in, in recent years I stopped skating the, the the what they call the mega ramps, which are the the ones you see the big air events on TV. You know the the ramp is is twenty eight feet tall. That's the top of the ramp, and so the, everything you do is is um, amplified in terms of your speed, your height, and so it's it's almost two to three times your usual height and one wrong move on that you know just one small adjustment the wrong way is tragic and i just don't have 
I don't, I don't have the youth <laughs> that I can survive those kind of falls. So I kind of quit doing that. I think that's, that's the moment, like the last time I did about a 15 foot air on one of those things and fell doing it, it was like, I don't want to drop this far anymore. It's so, just not that fun. So, so it's funny. I, I, it, so this is, you, you said a bunch of things that lead to a bunch of questions. Like you said, when you started out, it was all pools because they didn't have the ramps because it wasn't really an institution like it is now to some extent. And the idea, and you see this in the movie Lords of Dogtown, where it, where it kind of starts with the pools, it's very rebellious. The, there was a drought. The kids are going in the pool because they're all empty, and they start skating until they get chased out. So almost like the culture of this starts in rebellion. And did, did that appeal to you as well as the athleticism when you first started? Um, I liked that it. it set me apart. I started when I was pretty young, so it wasn't like I was trying to rebel against everyone and get into punk rock. I was 10 years old, you know what I mean? It was like... I just really liked the feeling of it and I liked the, the artistry of it. I liked that it was active and it was at my, on my own terms, but there was definitely a creativity that, that I hadn't seen anywhere else or that I hadn't really um, embraced on any other sport. And so I really enjoyed that aspect and I liked that it set me apart from my peers. I thought it was cool. I thought it was like this different thing, even though they were like, you still skateboard? You know, you should have grown out of it by now. I'm 11 because <laughs> everyone like skateboarding was cool for for a hot minute and then it just went away and i didn't give it up so i was like i was considered the super nerd because i was still skating i was still doing this kids activity um but i just i just loved it and the 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 sort of rebellious aspect of it it just kind of came with the territory you know if you wanted to skate especially in the late 80s all the parks were closing you had to just go skate the urban landscape or go sneak into backyard pools and that's the only way you're going to have terrain. And so that came with it. And I wasn't trying to be a criminal, you know? I just wanted to skate. So, so I kind of want to ask along three areas. Like, obviously, you, achieve, you, you won 12 world championships. You've won all sorts of contests. Uh, I want to I ask about the path to excellence, no matter what your area of interest is. But then you kind of reinvented, or you did reinvent, into turning it from just a, a sport for yourself to this business empire. So the first thing is, let's say someone's not 11. Let's say someone's, I mean, I'm, I'm really actually jealous of that. I wish there was one thing I had been doing from 11 to 48. But let's say someone's like sitting in their cubicle and they're sick of their job and they are really passionate about something, but they don't even know the first step to achieve excellence at something. What do you think based on your own experience, if you could dissect it, would be their first step or second step? Well, I think it, it's definitely um, taking, taking the risk of pursuing it, you know, regardless of, of the outcome, just that, that you want to do this. And, and I do feel like if, you've, if you chase your passion, I mean, I love what I do. I love skateboarding. I would do it for free any day. I get paid more money than I ever imagined to go ride my skateboard, which still seems absurd to me, um, but I love it. And so it's kind of like, in, in that sense, I feel like you're living the dream if you're doing what you love because you would go wake up and do that for free. So if there is some monetary um, success to that, all the better. Um, so, but, you know, sometimes it's a struggle. If you're trying to, you, obviously you're trying to start a new business and there's, there's peaks and valleys or sometimes it's just a struggle altogether. I think the best advice I have is, I mean, I, I'm preaching the choir, but I think the best advice I have is that you want to learn every aspect of what you're getting into. That's what I learned by 
accident almost in skateboarding. Like I started a skateboard business, I didn't ever want to know what point of purchase was or net or, you know, I, and then I just, but, but I didn't shy away from it. I embraced it because I wanted to be prepared for what was to come. But even in just skateboarding, like what was the role initially, like year one of mentors, teachers, like what's, you know, let's say I want to learn X, let's say I want to learn painting or whatever. Uh, what's, what's the role of like a teacher in learning? What's the role of uh, you know, how you practice and how you get feedback at it. Like, obviously, with skateboarding, the great thing is you get instant feedback. You either fall, fall or you don't, you know? And with you also, you had kind of the, the, those older kids who, you know, were teaching you every aspect. Like, what was every aspect of skateboarding that you had to learn? Well, uh, like, when I went through, you know, skateboarding has been through a lot of ups and downs. And so in the late 80s, early 90s, skating... In, in, in terms of the vertical realm, like the the pool skating, the ramp skating, just came to a halt because all the skate parks closed due to liability issues and insurance, and so they were gone, and everyone just went out and skated the streets. That's how all the modern street, all the modern skateboarding today was born, was out of necessity, going out and making the urban landscape your skate park, the handrails, the ledges. You know, I'm sure people think it was a nuisance back then. But that's all we had. And so I went out and learned that. You know, and it was it was hard to change my style like that. And it wasn't like I was trying to be relevant. I just wanted to keep skating and I didn't really I didn't have a choice. And that was that was the terrain. So that was like going way outside my comfort zone to learn a whole new technique of skating. But beyond that, learning to skate almost anything, you know, anything they throw at you, because because at some point you choose to be a pro skater you choose someone or perhaps someone supports you in it. You know, they say you're pro now and we're going to pay you. They expect you to be a professional. You know, you show up to a park or you show up to an exhibition and maybe the, the place is less than perfect. Maybe it's terrible, but you're a pro now you're expected to perform and you can't be a prima donna and be like, this place sucks. I'm going to skate in here where you might've done that when you were younger and, and with no sponsor. Okay, but when you, you turned pro at the age of 14, the first paycheck was 85 cents, right? For selling a board. Yeah, well, my first one was $4.85. My second one was 85 cents. Okay, you, you took a step So down. I got a spike in the, you know, pre-sale. So what, at that point, you must have had, like, either mentors or teachers or something. Like, what was the advice they were giving you to, to become pro? Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. It, 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 was a, it was a totally different industry then. So my... The way I turned pro was I had reached the top of the amateur ranks and I'm filling out the entry form to the next event and there's a checkbox that says amateur and there's a checkbox that says pro and so I checked the pro box. <laughs> and then that was it. And I remember my coach, Stacy Peralta, who is you know a legendary coach, looking over my shoulder and he said, okay. So um, he clearly thought you were ready for something. Yeah, I mean, he said it's up to you and, and that was it. But now it's like, there's the celebration, there's champagne, they surprise you with your own pro model, and it was like, well, now you're skating against the older guys. Good luck. Um, so it was different, but, but the advice that he had, I mean, really, his advice was more, uh, it, it was more about dealing with people and, and being, being communicative. You know, I, I, was, I was this little scrawny, even though I was a pro skater, I was still like an outcast at school, I was super small for my age. Like I was 16, but I looked like I was 12 almost. And so I had to learn to, to come out of my shell and really talk to people. And, and, 
and appreciate that you know this kid came up to me with my own skateboard model and wanted an autograph and I and I'm so self-conscious that I'm like oh, I don't know I feel weird and then he just thinks I'm a dick and so that kind of thing was what Stacy really helped me with so like, and hey, that, you know you gotta this, these are the guys these these kids are making it happen for you you should talk to them I mean it seems like that ties in later to you know transforming I mean many athletes go pro and then go broke and so obviously yeah. you went the other direction so so what what do you oh, think i went was, broke i definitely so, went broke a couple okay times, yeah. when think when when skateboarding was like getting outlawed or whatever when it when essentially there was a drought in skateboarding yeah. what it was your passion for it that kept you through but what what kept you skating throughout that because it seemed like everybody else stopped uh i i just loved it i i loved that i i could do it i i had i had the um luxury of still being recognizable in some ways that i could like Let's, we're talking about the early 90s. Um, I took out a second mortgage on my house to start a skate company, which seems like the most ridiculous idea because skating was going down. But, but I, I partnered up with another former pro skater and we said, you know, we've seen skateboarding come and go twice. It's bound to come back. And if we start a company now, it'll take the, the least capital to be, to be on top of the skate industry. Like to get the back cover of the magazine, was the magazines were giving it away pretty much. And the companies that were big already were kind of giving up. So we positioned ourselves in a really good time. Um, but in those days, I was doing, like my, my skate career was the extent of going to Six Flags and skating in the parking lot, like on half pipe with rollerbladers um, for three times a day for a hundred bucks a day. That was your job? That was living the dream. So That was my job, yeah. And, and it seems like, uh, you know, it seems absurd now, but it was paying the rent and I got to skate and that's all that mattered to me. And then, uh, you know, it's hard to have the sense that things are going to come back. Like, it, obviously in retrospect, it seems very prophetic that you could say, okay, this happened in the 70s and the 80s and it always came back. Oh yeah, it was a big risk and it came back later than we thought. So there were a couple times through those years, like 93, 94, where we thought maybe we, this isn't going to work. We might have to give up. What would you have done? Uh, you had all, all you had done for 10 years prior was yeah, skateboarding every day. I, I had gotten pretty good at doing video editing and I actually had my own little system. And so I started freelancing for other skate companies. So I was literally making the skate videos of our competitors um, for a little cash. And then, you know, it seems like it would never have come back or maybe this is not true, but what do you think? Would it have come back without the... Uh, first version of the extreme games on ESPN. I don't. Well, that's the, the definitely X Games helped raise the profile of skating. You know, X Games. The first, the first one was the Extreme Games in 1995, and they were just throwing anything out there. It was like bungee jumping and eco challenge and um, sky surfing and stuff that I just don't associate with skateboarding at all. But through that test. And through them kind of weeding out the, the random sports they're throwing in there, um, skateboarding always shined through. I feel like that that was one of the highlights, and, and that's one of the events that the kids really enjoyed watching. And I think they really enjoyed, you know, they, they were jaded with pro athletes at the time. Like they seemed unreachable. They seemed like they weren't even they they weren't even people that you could talk to. And they saw us in those days killing ourselves trying you know just for the sake of a trick or for a score and being excited because we did well there was you know for almost no money 
And I feel like that shined through. You know, there was something very real and tangible about that. And kids, you know, it was the MTV generation, short attention span, instant action. And so that was like the perfect storm. That combined with our video game release four years later, I mean, that was like the perfect storm of, of um, awareness and of popularity. Do you think, I also feel like skateboarding maybe had a little bit more of a subculture to it compared to like bungee jumping or something like that. Like, I hope so. Yeah, it, well, it seems like there was, there was music, clothes. For sure, yeah. Well, there was definitely a lifestyle associated with it and there was, there was an attitude and, and there was a culture that, that was born out of, you know, punk rock, 70s, pool skating, clothes, surfing. And so when did you decide, okay, I'm going to dominate every area of it and... I don't, that, was not, that was never a... a that wasn't your world That plan. was not a conscious decision, no. <laughs> this is what's going to happen. Um, like, what did I, start uh, happening? Like, when did you start to realize, oh, yeah, this is now happening? When our first video game got released, I, I was... We worked on it for a few years. I was hugely proud of it, and I knew that the skateboarders would like it, but skateboarders just started calling it the game. And I knew we had a hit then where that's, it was like, did you play the game? Have you played the game? You know, that's what they would talk to each other. And I knew that that was something, I think when I knew it was beyond anything I ever imagined, we, we released our fourth game and the, the previous three titles were still in the top 10. So how many, how many total games have you sold with, you know, your, your company? I don't, I don't know. I know I mean, it's been, was, it was a billion in sales, but I don't really know the, the exact number of units. So as you're learning to be essentially the world champion skateboarder, you learned all these techniques of excellence. What do you think kind of translated over when you started trying to get better at business? I think it I'm was. Sure you made mis- I'm sure you fell sometimes. Oh yeah, for sure. Well. I think it was the idea of, of not, not being afraid to fall, of, of taking risks, and, and you know that that adrenaline rush, even even in business or throwing money like we did this tour, the Boom Boom Hak Jam, where it was skateboarding, motocross, and BMX in an arena setting, where I just designed this ramp setup, and no one was going to push push the button to hit go on that thing, so. I designed this crazy ramp setup, and it was like, well, we need to get you know someone to underwrite it. I'm like, no one's going to underwrite you. You gotta, you gotta go. And so I wrote a check for a million dollars for the ramps, and it worked out. Yeah, though that's the ramp that's at my office today. The same ramp. It's the, it is. Ask anyone, it's the best ramp in the world. So what was what was like a bad decision? Yeah, what you pay for. What, what was what was a bad decision uh, that you made early on in the, oh, in the business? Side? Wow. Um, well, when we had. Uh, Birdhouse was under the umbrella of Blitz Distribution, which my partner and I also started. And we really liked doing other startups, so we, we started other brands like Baker Skateboards, Hookups, um, Flip, which all are still around today. And he really wanted to do... He, he had a friend who was a designer, and he wanted to do high-end denim. And it was right when, you know, the, the, the cool washes were coming out and... Um, and it was very boutique. And I, I followed his lead. I said, yeah, because the, the designs were cool. And he was definitely ahead of his time. Little did we know that not everyone wanted to pay $200 for jeans. Uh, and that it was going to keep costing us money to produce. And, and basically, the, the jean company sucked away our profits for about two years. 
and we sold it for the, for our debt. And so, so I learned that I'm not good at high end denim. <laughs> or or it could have been. Do you think it was maybe like off culture a little bit? It was yeah, a little off culture too. Yeah, I mean it was definitely way outside of our expertise. But we were you know we we knew this guy was a good designer. We knew he knew what he was doing. We just didn't realize how much it would cost. And then uh, you know this is related to like particularly around this mid '90s time, you were starting to get uh, criticized a little bit because you were the first skateboarder to really take sponsorships from everybody. King of the sellout. Yeah, so so how did you, <clears throat> A, how did you make decisions in terms of what brands you would uh, sponsor, and B, how did you deal with essentially the haters? Um, well, so the haters, I've, I've had a lot of criticism all through my career because firstly for my style, when I was a kid, like I said, I was a scrawny kid, so I didn't have the surfer style that everyone really liked at the time. I was like... Just, I have that style, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you're such a legend yes there you go <laughs> um, so I, my style was all about tricks and then I just got criticized but you know eventually sort of found my strengths and, and did really well in competition and kind of just shut everyone up in, in that way um, so I was already used to that so when it came around and, and I started getting big endorsements from non-skateboard companies um, that was the first cry of sellout and it was like you guys I I'm in my 20s. I've, I've already been through this cycle before and I got to make, luckily it was the 80s and there wasn't any YouTube, but um, I got to make plenty of mistakes then and, and I didn't hold on to my approval rights with products I was doing. So I was just signing my name to stuff and people were just making junk with my name on it. And so when it came back around to do these bigger endorsements, I held, I held on to final approvals and I had to fight for it. And... Through that, I feel well, like who do you have to fight I, with for that? Oh, uh, because you had your own company at the time. Uh, well, like if I was if I was promoting stuff, I mean, I did I did endorsements with with Frito Lay, with Frito Lay, uh, McDonald's, Bagel Bites, you know, all these different um, brands, and I had to fight for final approval over every single thing that, that had my image, um, which was a battle for sure. But I'm lucky I did, and so I feel like I. I kept my integrity through through those years, but and also at the same time, what I was trying to tell people is, you know, I, I'm not. It's not like I'm suddenly deciding that I, I'm, you know, I've lost my moral compass. If you had offered me a McDonald's sponsorship when I was 14, I would have took it in a heartbeat. I love McDonald's. I, you know, I still do. I, I don't care. Um, that's the thing. It was more. It was more like the things that I really enjoyed and what I was into. Those were the things that I was willing to promote. And then, so then, along this, along this time, uh, Activision comes along, or maybe other video game companies. And then, how did you decide? You know, that seemed like a huge opportunity. What happened? What happened uh, next? That was just intuitive. I, I saw. I had a couple of. I had a couple of um, interests from from other companies to do video game, and, and I saw what they wanted to create, and and basically just kind of waited. Because I knew that there might be something better, and Activision called and said, "Hey, we're doing a video game, skate video game. We heard you might be doing one, or you're you're looking around. Why don't you come see what we're working on?" And and so I went to their office, and they had just done a <laughs> they had just done a, a a video game with Bruce Willis called Apocalypse that I guess tanked, hmm. um, but the engine was the basis of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. So the first thing I ever saw was Bruce Willis with a gun strapped to his back on a skateboard 
riding through wasteland doing kickflips. And when I was playing it, I knew immediately, I was like, this is it. This is, this is how it should feel. This is intuitive. The controls were already kind of mapped out, but not the way that I would have wanted. But I just felt like, I was like, if I, if I can lend my resources to this, this is the game. So how many iterations back and forth before you finally had it to where the skateboarder in the video game was performing how you would, how you would perform? Uh, about a year. Mm-hmm. About a year back and forth. You didn't feel like, okay, it's good enough. You just wanted to, you, you felt the No, I to... dove in. I was, I was living that video game. Like I was definitely, um, I was talking to them every day. They were sending me, well, we were on a PS1 then, so they'd send me these, these burn discs of an update every week. And I would, pra- I would play it and give them feedback. And um, it was a blast. I mean, we, it was like, and then I, you know, had to, I had to teach Neversoft all about skating, so they would have like these company outings to the skate park, and the guys would break their ankles, and it was fun. So it still seems at this point like you know the X Games were still ramping up, literally, and you were you were uh, participating in them in every year. But then there's this one event that happened at, a, at the rel- relatively advanced age of I guess 31 or 30 uh, in <laughs> yeah. 1999. You you on your 12th try you hit. Uh, What's called the 900. Do you want to describe what, what that move was? Because that then, it seems like that catapulted everything to another level. Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, that was another... And was that a luck perfect... thing, would you say? I mean, not luck that you no, hit that I, trick, No, I had but... been trying 900s um, for about 10 years. I mean, literally, I, I tried my first one in 1989. I remember exactly where I was in Bourges, France. And I couldn't really get myself to commit or spin fast enough, but I knew... It might be possible one so day. Just to describe, what what is it? Uh, it's it's two and a half. It's basically two and a half spins in the air. So you go up, you go up a ramp, forward, spin around like kind of two and a half somersault, and then as you come back down, since you're coming down the same wall, you come down forward. So seven twenties had been done. I I for, did my first seven twenty in 1985, and so that was sort of the natural progression of spinning would be five forty, seven twenty, nine hundred, and there were only a handful of us that could even try it through the years. And so in the years, I'd say like 95 to 97, there was this race for the 900 and there were, the, there were all these guys that were trying it and we all got destroyed. Like we were just, you know, I was breaking ribs and throwing my back out and I'd go, I'd go with a camera crew and you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like big production. It was just more like, hey, do you mind shooting photos today? Do you mind shooting video? Okay, let's do it. But shooting a video of you breaking bones, basically. Pretty much, yeah. I, I had the, the video of my first one, it was in 1995, the first one I ever really put down on the wall. I was leaning too far forward and just crashed into the bottom and broke my rib. Um, so I, by 99, I'd kind of given up on it. I, you know, I, I, I liked it. I, I liked that it was possible, but it was like, I, I gave it everything when I would do it, you know, and, and I just thought I, I'm not capable of doing this. And so when the best X games had a best trick event that night and my plan was to do a varial 720, which is basically a 720 with spinning your board an extra 180. So your board doesn't 100, almost there. Mm. Um, and I did that very early on in the event. And that was all I had planned because that was my hardest trick at the time. That, that literally was my best trick. And so I just started spinning 900s more for the crowd. And the, the announcer actually kind of goaded me into it too. He's like, come on, let's do it. I was like, okay, here we go. This is, this is what it looks like, you know. And as I was spinning it, every spin was consistent. And that's usually not the case. Usually it's kind of one out of three or four that feel okay. And so I just said, wow, you know, I could 
maybe I could try to really make it. Um, and I knew from previous experience that if I shift my weight, if I don't, if, if I land the way I think I'm going to land, I'm going to land too far forward. So if I can shift my weight somehow during mid spin, I can even it out and land. And I started figuring that out in the middle of very the quickly X in the middle of the national. Yeah. Well, national the time audience. had expired by then. So for, by they that kept time, filming. they kept filming, but I thought really, I just thought like, okay, it's not going to count for this competition, but I still want to do it. And at that point, I was getting so close that I was like, okay, I'm either going to make it or they're going to take me out on a stretcher. That was the only two endings to that night. Um, and then I made it. And then after that, it was just like crazy. Like everybody... It was. I mean, that, that became like a sports center highlight. And they had never, you know, sport... Like X Games was still like their bastard child for ESPN. Even then, it was, you know, it was bigger, but they were still like, extreme, bro. You know, it was all kind of silly and then and then that when that happened it it transcended skateboarding um in terms of their recognition of it and so and this is while you were building this multi-million dollar you know clothing I, well, well no 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 I, I, the, so things were just starting to happen then and but but it was i mean it it, it was the most perfect timing it, it was not intentional but it was the most perfect time because our video game was released two months later and so, but it, it seems though it's what really is successful here is not any one thing, but the complete immersion across the board. So you're landing the best trick, putting out a video game, doing all the sponsorship stuff. So without all of it combined, probably wouldn't have, you know, created the huge business that you were able to create. Or what's your what's your take on that? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I would have become a business per se after that. I mean, that that was after that in the video game. That's when I became Tony Hawk Inc., which seems super strange, but that's just how it had to be. And, uh, and then I was able to, well, that was, that was a good out from competition, was that year. So then I got to explore more opportunities, and because I had this, this awareness that transcended just the skate industry, I was able to open new doors and opportunities, and that's when we started the Boom Boom Hawk Jam, the tour. Um, I started doing much bigger endorsements, and I started the foundation. That was right around the same time. And how do you think, do you think that same idea of immersion translates to uh, many other areas, like let's say even other sports or other activities? Like everybody here is an entrepreneur, and you know, how, what, what does total immersion mean? And like, what, is the, what does the concept mean? Um, I think it's, it's just living, living passionately and, and, and diving in headfirst into whatever you're doing. Um, it's almost like you're, you're so, you're so into it that you don't even realize it's being successful. I guess that's how I feel about it. When, when those, all those things were happening, it was amazing to me, but I just wanted to keep going and keep doing the next thing and learning, even learning new tricks. Even today, like I'm still trying to learn new tricks, but that's that's the drive and so as long as you're still trying to challenge yourself and still trying to improve on whatever you're doing it'll be you'll keep being successful at it so even though you're not doing the mega ramps anymore are you still trying in some ways yeah. to improve every day yeah because i i've kind of shifted my focus to much more technical skating um low more low impact and, and what does it mean what's a technical skating uh technical is just like like doing really complicated tricks with the board um, but not at great heights. So new ways to flip it, landing in grinds and combinations and things like that. I mean, so the, stuff, the stuff that I'm doing now, I'll, I'll make one out of 100 tries, maybe. Mm -hmm. But as long as I got on video, 
It's good. Well, I saw a couple months ago you built this. Um, you built from scratch. You had someone build it. This downward spiral ramp, yeah. which I had never seen before. And then they show the video of you going on it again and again, falling constantly, and then moving the mattresses down lower and lower because you would keep crashing into the mattresses until finally they remove them. Yeah. So how many tries did that take? And you were 47 years old. So yeah, that, this- well, that's something that I've... Uh, see, that, that's an example of keeping creative control. So that was an idea I had a long time ago because we done we do full loops, like Hot Wheels loop, right? And we actually incorporated that into our Huck Jam tour. And I thought, well, what if you turn that sideways so you actually try to stick on a vertical wall like that? And I... I brought it to my um, guy who runs our ride channel and video production. He said, hey, you know, we should ask Sony if they want to do something like that. And so we pitched it to Sony and they said, yeah, we're in. Go for it. You have, here's the budget. Do it. And so um, it was totally uh, our our thing, but funded by Sony, which was amazing. Do you always look for a partner like that when you're um, buying a new thing? Yeah, I try to. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to pay for it. <laughs> I think that's a good lesson. Yeah. Um, and so they said, yeah, and it was funny though because we, we put the thing up and, and I, I mean, I was fairly confident, but I didn't know if it was going to work. And they had all these Sony suits there watching, which was super strange. You know, like these corporate Sony dudes were just standing on the ramp like, well, when does this thing get going? When's the, when's the big event? And it's just me like slamming and cussing. And, and, and you, were, you were bleeding like in the video. Yeah. There was blood. Yeah. I mean, I anticipated some falls for sure, but if you really watch it from start to finish, you can see that I keep getting further and further, like, yeah. figuring it out, and then uh, it finally worked. So, you know, uh, I have a, a final question, and then um, I'm sure everyone here has, has some questions, but um, many people might not know your son, Riley, is an incredible street skater, which is a different style than yeah. what you had mastered, and watching his videos are incredible. What, what was that... Like, what would you suggest? So I'm a father of a 17-year-old. What would you suggest as even advice like did you, for someone who wants to kind of push their kid in a direction? Or not push, but uh, I don't know how to ask this. Like, obviously this was happy to you, a happy event that your kid was following in your footsteps. Did you push him in any way? I didn't, actually. Well, I, thing? I, I had a heart-to-heart with him when he was about 15 or 16 because... He was riding motorcycles, he was surfing, he was snowboarding, and he was way more proficient at skating. And um, he kept talking about how he's going to try to get this motorcycle sponsor. And I mean, I know, I know freestyle motocross. He wasn't that good at it. You know? <laughs> he was, but he enjoyed it. Um, but he kept talking about it. And we didn't really have the resources to, to get him you know, to the track and to enough... Um, frequently enough that it was really going to benefit him. And and he was also talking about like maybe a surf sponsor. And I said, Riley, I know like you're, you're good at those things, but you're exceptional at skateboarding. You're, you're already way better than most kids your age. You know, and I know you, like it's hard to go from beneath my shadow, but you do have your own style. You have your own direction and you know, you don't have to, follow my footsteps necessarily, but you do have an opportunity here. Um, and I think that that was, the, that was when he really started to focus on skating only. And did you, did you initially teach him some of the... He just grew up around it. I mean, he, when, when he was young is when we started Birdhouse, when, when it was very lean times. And so if I got the opportunity to travel, he just came with me. 
So like when I'm talking about those Six Flags parking lot demos, he was over in the corner playing with his um, Power Rangers during my demos. Mm. <laughs> not, that's not a joke. All right, well, I'm going to... It's kind of sad because I couldn't afford childcare. So. <laughs> but, but then he, uh, you know, he, he grew to love... Like, that could have turned him away from it, absolutely. Just that he was forced, you know, not, not forced to do it, but it was just around him all the time. It was like, that could have been, you know, I'm sick of it. But he, he embraced it. He loved it. Well, and again, there's this immersion aspect too. He saw every part of, of the culture yeah. of it as well. Yeah. Even more than these other sports. Yeah, I think so. So I, I want to open it up to anybody to ask questions so take two or three questions of course from the sports uh sports coach here extraordinary uh tony i'd love to hear as you were like developing your businesses who gave you some really strong business advice that would be you know people that we wouldn't really recognize or essentially people from maybe your industry as well or sports that kind of said, hey, you know, I've had some experience in this as well and maybe here's some things that you should be thinking about as you're kind of scaling up your own personal brand and some of these licensing deals that you've been doing and, 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 what, and how, how that advice ended up playing out with some of the businesses. Well, I think that, um, well, my, my sister helped me immensely. She, she um, used to be a singer. She was a singer for... Righteous Brothers and from Michael Bolton. And, and so she really knew entertainment. And when she saw things ramping up for me, she just had just had uh, twins. And she said, well, you know, I'd love to help you because you're kind of moving into entertainment. Like that's, that's what's happening here, even though you're still skating as much. And uh, she was the one who fought for me to keep control of my brand. She's like, you got to keep control of, you know, because she saw the stupid stuff I did in the 80s. <laughs> like I, I, there was a, there was a story I've told it, but I was working with this one company and they were making just terrible items and they were like ripping off logos and putting my name on it and they were making wallets and keychains and I went to their office one day because I was sick of it and I wanted to say hey you know you can't do this and they said well actually yeah we can we signed your name we have free reign to do whatever we want with it and while he's talking. I'm behind him. I'm not kidding. There's a roll of toilet paper. This is Tony Hawk gear on it. And I was like, well, what is that? And he said, oh, well, one of the retailers said, you know, so you put toilet paper, you put his name on toilet paper and it would sell. And so we made that for them. Like, and he's thinking like, isn't that funny? I'm like, this, this sucks. And I, I that day went and, and paid to get out of my contract. Um, but I learned from that, but I also learned, like I said, from my sister, she said, you gotta, you gotta keep creative control. You've gotta, we have to stand hard on that in the contracts. And, um, and it's weird being a person and a brand, but that was how I really kept control of the brand. And, and I, I tell that to business startups all the time, you know, don't let someone else take what you have created because they're not gonna, they're not gonna take in the direction that you think they are or that you want them to. Unless you really just want to cash out. Uh, let me get Yannick. And your sister is your COO, isn't she? Yeah. And how long has she been your COO? Uh, since uh, almost 20 years now. Wow. That's actually right in the same direction that I was going to ask you. So working with family, pros, cons, what's, uh, what's been the, the best part about it? What's the, the, best, the worst part that you can actually mention? Or what do you want to look out for? Because I, I work uh, with family. Well, it's, 
it I mean it's hard to have the when things aren't going well those you don't want to you don't have the blame game obviously um and uh I think we give each other enough space and respect each other in terms of what our strengths are but definitely we butt heads and and you know that can be tricky because it's your family but um uh you just I think you just have to have a mutual respect for what you're doing and not think that one of us is is above the other in any in any time and uh you know there are times when she'll she's like what are you, you know, when, when I first started doing social media she just didn't really understand it and then she saw how it blossomed and and then she started figuring out better ways to use it as well but like I even today I had a conversation with her I got invited to go to Snapchat headquarters on behalf of Nixon and I don't really know what that means you know but but I knew that it would probably get my Snapchat followers up because they're going to probably promote me, you know, and, and on their main whatever page or sna- on Snapchat. And so, and so she's like, why do you, you know, we don't, you don't owe that to Nixon or this is a conversation we just had. Like, you don't owe that to Nixon or to Tilly's was part of it. And uh, I said, yeah, but if I go there, then my Snapchat numbers will go up and that'll raise my, you know, that'll raise my, uh, my value in terms of doing social media marketing. And that's been this really strange new um, venture is, is doing social media ads. And it, it's good money. It's crazy. And they trust me to, to do it in my own voice. So um, that's been a blast. Cool. But I need my Snapchat numbers up. <laughs> <laughs> we got Cole over here. Hey, Tony. I just don't have a question. I just want to say thank you. I watched you in the half pipe and I wanted one so bad. I came to my parents and they said, if I want a half pipe, I had to pay for it. So I was probably, I don't Get know. Get Sony to pay for it. Well, so check this out. I literally, it was about Christmas time. I pulled mistletoe out of trees that was growing naturally and packaged them up and sold them door to door to save up enough money to pay for my first half pipe, which was the creation and the, the first thing I did entrepreneurially, which launched my career. That's so, awesome. So I just want to say thank you because I'm one of millions of people you've done that for. So thank uh, you. Thank you. That, that is one the coolest story about building a ramp I've ever heard. Well, okay, we'll, we'll take two quick ones. And then I know Tony is hanging around just for a little bit longer after that. So, Yeah, my 10-year-old self is super excited to be talking to you. So that's great. <laughs> thank you. So... I had posters of you and your peers up on my wall, and I'm curious as to what you think the difference is now looking back between you and those other guys that were up there of how you were able to make the moves you did to establish the brand and make the decisions, and a lot of them did not did not fare so well or make the same decisions. What, what, what do you credit that to now looking back? I think that, well, for me, early on, I never rested on my laurels. I always wanted to learn new tricks. So even though I was considered number one competitor or number one overall or whatnot, I, I, that wasn't the drive. The drive was to, to keep challenging myself, to keep getting better. And so I, I think that's where some, you know, some of my peers as well, they got caught up in the, in the celebrity party aspect. And it was almost like they, they reached this, this pinnacle and it's like, well, that's it. There's, no, there's nothing else. Or they lost their motivation. And I never lost my motivation because my motivation was just about tricks. It was just super nerdy. Um, but that is what helped me sort of make it through those formative years and, and, and those times when I could have got caught up in the party. Um, and, uh, and I knew that 
I guess I I knew early on that that I couldn't get into that aspect of it, like the the whole party scene, because it was going to affect my performance, and I was too proud of how I skated to be able to 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 think that I want to do anything that would hinder that. And we got our last one here with Kevin. Uh, hey Tony, in all this mayhem, you're like the bad guy, right? Yeah. And cocaine's uh, a hell of a drug. Yeah, no doubt. So the Pappas brothers, you know, they sort of make you the bad guy. I was just curious about your side of that story and um, what your relationship was with those guys and, you know, some of the other old guys like Alva and those guys. Um, there's just so much that is left out of that, you know, and, and there's, it, was, it was very easy for them to make me the this villain. Um, what they didn't say about that was that uh, what he's talking about, there's this documentary where basically this, this skater who got super strung out on drugs and so did his his brother who killed his girlfriend and also killed himself. And it's just a really tragic story. And I never spoke up about it because he was basically saying that I sold the idea for the 900 from him and I somehow banned him from the X Games. I had nothing to do with anyone competing in X Games, by the way. I was a competitor. And so in his version of this story, I methodically watched him try this trick which I, I didn't really watch him. I watched another guy who was trying it because another guy, another guy was way closer than him. But um, that I watched him try it. I figured out how to do it. And then I saved it for the X Games and I got him banned. And then I did it. And my whole life and career was all planned out, including video games, including sponsorships. It was all, it was all a big master plan that I had um, at his expense. That's his story. And people that watch the documentary... They they just believe it. They believe this, you know, this guy who was a hardcore drug addict. Um, and it's just unfortunate. Like, I just didn't want to talk about it because the whole story is so tragic that it's like, who cares about this stupid trick? Why would I want to fight this? You know what I mean? Why why would I want to fight this whole story or try to vindicate myself when there's just too much other important aspects to it? So um, what they didn't say was... Uh, Danny Way was the first one to try 900. He's where everyone got the idea because he really was the first one to really get close to it. Um, there was a guy, there were, there were about five of us chasing it at the time. I was the first one that thought of it because I did a 720 first. So that kind of seems to go without saying that if I did a 540, I learned a 720, what's next? Well, I better wait for Tuss to figure that out. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's so weird to be talking about this. But um, so there were other best trick events during that time. Um, and Tuss would show up and just try 900s during the best trick events. Uh, I knew better than to try a trick I've never done before in a best trick event. So he never placed in the best trick events because he was just focused on this one trick that he couldn't make. And I believe that's why they didn't choose him for the X Games because he had never placed so he was not qualified to be in an event like that. But in his version of the story, that's the only best trick event that ever existed. And so that's, you know, it's, it's just such a, it's such a bummer that that, that the, the bummer for me is that that is his reality, you know, in his distorted view. And it's not the truth. Um, and I wish he, I wish he could accept the truth. Um, but we've we've kind of made some amends through social media recently, and you know I, I've I've spoken my side of the story only because 
the media was just coming after me and I was trying to be quiet. And finally I was like, okay, here it is. Here's what happened. Um, but it's just, it's, it's, it's weird, man. It's weird to watch. It's weird to watch a whole sort of string of lies about you presented in that way. Um, I never thought that was something I'd have to deal with. So I got to answer it. Yeah, no. <laughs> did, I, did I go on too long? I got, I got a last quick one. Did I one. protest too much? <laughs> I, I got a last quick one about the, the hoverboard um, fiasco. I guess that was one of the... Fiasco. It was a little bit of a, a media thing. Uh, were you aware that it wasn't, uh, I guess, legit to some degree? I mean, there was... There was a, your name okay, was the, so there's, there's, there are different levels to this. You're speaking of the fake hoverboard yes. video that other celebrities were involved with. Okay, I got asked to do that because it was Funny or Die that did it. They, Funny or Die called me and said, hey, we have the original setup from Back to the Future hoverboard, the, the stunt rig. Do you want to do something? And, and, and Doc's going to do it. Um, what's his name? Christopher Lloyd. I was like, yeah. Back to the Future stunt rig. Christopher Lloyd, I'm in. And it's for Funny or Die. So I'm thinking it's for a funny spoof video, right? They liked the way it turned out so much that they just presented it like it was real and then didn't say anything. And so everyone, you know, eventually people figure out that it's fake and they're all pissed at me. And all the heat came down on me because I'm the only one who's really accessible in that video and, and through social media. So I, talk about a hate storm. Like people were really, really mad at me. Like you lied to us. How could you lie to us? Like, like their dreams, like as if this was their only dream in life was that a hoverboard was real. And I have shattered that completely. Um, so I, I took it upon myself and I was like, I'm going to just say what happened. And I made this apology video. Um, so that was that. Uh, and that was weird. And then just a few months later, this company called me and said, hey, we, we have a real hoverboard. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't want to be the hoverboard guy. And they said, well, you know, do you want to, if you want to come ride it? And I was like, oh, well, we, you know, we had just started our YouTube channel, Ride Channel, um, that was funded by, by Google. And I thought, well, that, that'd probably be a big boost for Ride Channel. Like, let's go up there and check it out. And so we went up to um, Los Gatos um, at Hendo and rode the real hoverboard, which is not anything like Back to the Future. Um, it's super loud. It's impossible to control, but it hovers. And if you stand on it, it'll start spinning. <laughs> so you can do a 900. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Thanks.